Sam. And I'm Imogen, and you're listening to Right Brain, the podcast. Today, we'll be talking about romantic cliches. Romantic cliches just in time for Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, Imogen. Yeah, happy Valentine's Day. Will you be my Valentine? You know, yeah, I will. You thought about that a little too long. I did. Well, I contemplated, you know, I do have a husband who will probably ask me the same thing, but you asked first. So I did. I will be your Valentine and he's just going to have to choose one of the dogs. I will be sure to send him a taunting text how I won you this year. (laughs) I'm sure he'd appreciate it. So we're going to talk about some cliches that we see in romance novels or romantic comedy movies or anything and everything, because there are a lot of them and you see them all the time. Yes. Yeah, there are a lot of them. Some of them are nauseating and awful, (laughs) but some of them are actually like, they're not bad, you know, but it's something that we just see over and over again. Like it's some kind of formula Mm -hmm. and we want to break them down and go into what they are, why we think they exist and give some examples of them. And I think a lot of them, you don't always even realize that you're seeing something over and over again. It is just so commonplace that it doesn't even register sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I think the first one that I think a lot of people, especially if you're watching those romantic comedies or reading young adult novels, is the love triangle. The love triangle. The love triangle. It sounds like so mysterious, you know, kind of whimsical. Like the Bermuda Triangle? Yes. Yes. But this is the Bermuda Triangle of love. (laughs) It's a mess. And... It should just disappear. One of the first examples that comes to my mind is Twilight. I only make that sound because there should never have been a love triangle. Yeah. So over the summer, I reread all of the Twilight books just for the hell of it. And it's so less obviously a love triangle in the books. Like she's very clearly into Edward. Jacob is like a little brother to her. But the movies just turned it into this battle where she has to choose between the two and it's just so unrealistic I feel like even in the movies you don't see as much of that battle I feel like a lot of it was the publicity they really pushed team Edward or team Jacob like you could buy (laughs) t-shirts with that on it yeah and you and I have had several twilight marathons over the past like year yes we have and it's super obvious that Jacob isn't a healthy relationship option for Bella. Edward isn't perfect either, but like they pushed the battle between the two of these dudes so hard. It was totally unnecessary. It was. And you weren't even given a third option of why does she have to choose either of them? You were only given the option of, well, she has to pick one or the other. Yeah. You know, which one? And it's just, it's so obviously clear that there was only ever one choice for her. Jacob's character is extremely domineering. He is just aggressive. He's a creepazoid sometimes too. And he's a creep. Like he kisses her without her permission. That's called sexual assault. Thank you. And he is more than willing to accept her love, knowing that there's a chance that he could imprint on someone else and she would be left behind, heartbroken over him. Like he doesn't care. He just wants her, even if like that's not his end game, which it obviously wasn't like her weird child is and it's just you know it's it's incredibly selfish behavior technically the whole time he was just attracted to the egg in her ovary you know i 
I hate that so much because that <laughs> also means at one point he was probably also attracted to Edward, which, you know, maybe that's why they started to get along toward the end. That was probably a really confusing time for Jacob. He's like, man. Right? He's like, why does Edward look kind of hot right now? Yeah. You know? <laughs> love triangles can be really messy. You see them all the time and they're so not a natural part of life. Like, and it's not even a triangle. It's not a triangle because you have point, like the point on the top, let's say that's Bella. Bottom left point, Edward. Bottom right point is Jacob. Both of those bottom points are pointing up. There's no middle connector between the bottom points because they're not interested in each other. So that's not a triangle. Yeah, that would be an interesting love triangle is seeing, like you said, a way that it goes all three directions. Yes, that's what I'm interested in. The only love triangle I want to read is one where it ends up in a thruple. Yes. <laughs> you also see a love triangle in the Hunger Games. And that is another one where it felt so forced because I don't think that Katniss really liked either one of them, but she was kind of forced into the whole thing with PETA. And then the Gale thing was just kind of awkward also. It was another situation, like you said, that she could have ended up alone. She didn't need to end up with either one of them. Yeah. I mean, probably for her character though, I feel like she did kind of need somebody because she was such a loner and she lost her sister and like her mom left. Like otherwise she just would have been completely alone. But we see her very smartly play this role kind of throughout the books, throughout the movies where she does pick Peta. And I do think inevitably because of this, she falls in love with him. I don't think it was planned and I don't think it was intended, but I don't think the character of Gail was ever an option. They were friends before she left for the Hunger Games. And if anything was going to happen, it would have, but it didn't. Mm -hmm. Personally, I would have preferred to see her with like Joanna. Oh, yeah. Right? That is such like a fierce herring and there's so much tension between the two of them. It could have been cool as hell, but. Oh, yeah. I want to read that. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, to each their own. But I think her character development with Peta, like she toughened him up, he softened her down. I think that there was some good growth there in the end. Again, not my choice, but you know, it's it's better than some of the other ones that we do see out there. Yeah, I suppose I can see that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that does kind of take us on to the next cliche, though, is the hate them before you love them. So it's like the whole enemies to lovers thing. Like, I mean, that's another trope that The Hunger Games falls into. Yeah. Because Katniss hated Peta, and then she ended up falling in love with him. It's just another one of those tropes that some of these books and movies fall into. Another great example is Pride and Prejudice. Yes. Which, you know how much I love my period dramas. They're very hot right now. They're very hot right now. Darcy is like the ultimate example of the dick that <laughs> you accidentally fall in love with when you hate him at the beginning, mm -hmm. but also like Colin Firth. So, you know. I mean, everything Colin Firth does is magic. I loved him in Mamma Mia. God, don't even get me started. Well, <laughs> that, is, <laughs> that is a segue we do not need to jump down. But uh, yeah, I mean, Pride and Prejudice. There are so many remakes or adaptations of this novel. And I love all of them. Like all of them offer something different. But the end game is always still there. They didn't like each other. And then they fell in love with each other. They kind of saw past their differences or preconceived notions of the other and actually got to know each other. Yeah. And that happens. That that feels more realistic to me than a love triangle. I'm not saying it's always realistic, like the movie The Proposal, 
with, you know, Ryan Reynolds and Sandra Bullock. She's the domineering boss and he's her assistant, you know, and they have to fake an engagement because she's Canadian and might get deported. And they like really start to get to know each other over like a three-day weekend to Alaska. That just seems very forced to me. Like they worked together. You know, a true person like based on that time at work, you see parts of people at work that you don't see other places. And I'm sure that's the same for home. Like you see parts of people at their homes that you don't see at work, but I don't think there's that much of a difference, you know, that you're going to like fall in love in three days. Yeah. I think that a lot of rom-coms kind of play off of these tropes in ways that are unrealistic and are kind of just forced for the sake of the movie. I think that the unrealism of them is kind of the whole crux of the genre Mm -hmm. that's playing this like romantic fantasy that's like oh what if I fell in love with my boss and then we went away to Alaska for a weekend yeah it's not something that's going to happen but it's something that you daydream about yeah and then I think that also lends on to even the next trope of friends to lovers why can't people just stay friends why do they have to fall in love with each other I don't know I don't, I don't get that. I mean, love is a mysterious force. Love is a mysterious force. Sure. But sometimes people should just stay friends. It's almost like saying, oh, well, if you're a man or if you're a woman and you're friends with the opposite sex, you can't just be friends. That's like, that's what it's pushing. And that's where that whole like bullshit idea of the friend zone comes into effect. The friend zone for all listeners out there does not exist. The friend zone is not a real thing. You are just friends with a person and that is okay. Yeah. If they don't feel the same way about you, then that's not them putting you in the friend zone. That is... It's not them being cruel to you. Yeah. You just need to get over it. And that may sound harsh, but the friend zone is not real. Yeah. You're either going to be lovers or you're not. No one's doing it to be mean to you. And if they are, then maybe you don't want to be with them anyway. Yeah, there's a reason you're not together. It's probably because you're ultimately not compatible. You may be sexually attracted to the person, but you're probably not compatible. So take that as a word of advice. The friend zone does not exist. (laughs) And the trope of friends to lovers pushes that idea that it is. Have you seen the movie When Harry Met Sally? Yes, it's been a very long time, but yes. So Harry, in the beginning of the movie, says that men and women can't be friends because ultimately one of them will be attracted to the other. And then the whole movie is basically proving that they become really good friends. Mm -hmm. But then at the end, they get together. Typical. And I actually really like that movie because it is done in a way that feels kind of natural. Like when they are friends, they don't have like this weird sexual tension between them. They're just friends. And then they kind of get together somewhat naturally at the end. So it doesn't feel like. Well, it seems like both characters were into it. Yeah. That's the thing. Like you can be friends and it turns into a relationship naturally. But just because you're friends with someone doesn't mean that it's going to turn that way. That sounds good, though. I definitely need to rewatch that. Yeah, it doesn't so much enforce the the idea that men and women can't be friends because at one point Harry even retracts that statement. He says, I guess I was wrong. Men and women can be friends, but then they're also discovered that they are compatible at the end. I guess what I'm saying is that there are ways in which these tropes can work and there are ways in which they don't. 
that seems like a really reasonable way to say that. And it's, I mean, it's true. Like sometimes you are friends with someone like I'll put my parents on blast here. My parents were friends for a few years before they ultimately got together. And now as of January 28th, that's 32 years of marriage. Hey, oh, like there's a reason, <laughs> hey, oh, there's a reason that they're still together is because they were friends, found out that they were compatible and then their relationship formed from that. Yeah, sometimes it's really great to be friends with someone, build that foundation, discover that you're compatible in a way that's not strictly platonic. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that works. Or one-sided. Yeah. And in some cases it is one-sided and maybe one part of the friendship thinks that, you know, oh, we should be together. But if the other party doesn't feel the same way, then you can't force that. And that ultimately means you're not compatible. I think we made our point that, you know, sometimes it does work out, but that sometimes it doesn't. Do you want to, I guess, segue us to the next one? Forbidden love. That's all I got. I tried to think of a witty segue, but I couldn't think of anything. So I'm just going to say forbidden love. I mean, I like that. You know, I think <laughs> I think that works. But yes, the idea of forbidden love. We think Romeo and Juliet. That's got to be the first one that comes to people's mind. Yes. My parents don't agree. Well, my parents also don't agree. Let's meet in secret and die. Except don't do that last part. <laughs> but you know, there's something like mysterious and whimsical and exciting about forbidden love. But there's also something incredibly dangerous about it because you all may go down that route of soulmates who are kept away from each other. But you also have a problem of going down the route of infidelity and affairs. Yeah. And that's where it gets problematic. It's a very slippery slope. Yes. Another example of forbidden love is like Twilight. Again, we won't talk about that too much longer, but Bella knows that she shouldn't be with Edward and Edward tries to resist because they are... These are the eyes of a killer, Bella. <laughs> I've killed people. <laughs> this is the skin of a monster. Sparkle, sparkle, sparkle. Like diamonds. And then there's also kind of going off of Twilight, there is a discovery of witches, which I've seen the... TV show of that. I haven't read the books, but it's like a really sexy Twilight type thing. And they have that kind of forbidden love. We shouldn't be together. We're on opposite sides, you know, very Romeo and Juliet also, but it's done in a little bit more heated way where it feels like passion prevails. Well, they're also like not teenagers. Yeah. They're also like grown as adults. So it's a little different, like teenagers, you know, like in Twilight or children in Romeo and Juliet. They are children. I don't care what people say. They're children who were just getting in way too deep. I think it's mentioned in Romeo and Juliet that Juliet hadn't even had her first period yet. Shakespeare would mention that. Well, yeah. <laughs> he was a raunchy dude. He was a dirty bird. So going from forbidden love to soulmate is kind of the next cliche that we see. And I, I like this cliche. It feels, depending on how it's done... It just feels a little bit more natural. And I just, I love the princess bride, you know, like every time I think of soulmates, I'm like, oh my God, Wesley and Buttercup. Ugh, yes. They're just everything, you know? I think that talking about soulmates and forbidden love, there are often two sides of the same coin. And sometimes they overlap a little bit because maybe two people that feel their love is forbidden feel that they are soulmates and that they can prevail. Yes. Very good point. Very good point. I mean- I mean, would you consider, so like The Notebook, would you consider Noah and Allie to be soulmates? No, I've never seen The Notebook. Or would you just say? <gasps> I've never, 
I've never read it. It's okay. I'm sorry. Well, we know what you're doing this Valentine's Day. Sitting alone and watching The Notebook with my two cats. Watching The Notebook. Yeah, maybe sound like a complete fucking loser, Imogen. Thanks. First of all, not my intention. Second of all, I think the later depictions, I won't get too much into it because I don't want to spoil it for you or for any other unfortunate soul. I'm just kidding. Uh, But, you know, I think the later depictions of Noah and Allie and the notebook are more reminiscent of being soulmates in the beginning. You know, she comes from like more of an upper class and he's more working class, you know, young teenagers when they meet. And it's like a summer romance. In that time frame, it was a little bit more problematic. Like they didn't know who they were. They were just kind of caught up in like this whirlwind romance. They kind of argued a lot and it was just heated and didn't feel very healthy. But later on, as they developed and, and grew up to understand each other, I think it felt more borderline soulmate, but either way, the Princess Bride is just the epitome of soulmates. Yes, definitely. So if we go from forbidden romance, soulmates, what about the cliche of fake relationships? I love it. Yeah. Tell me about it. Again, going to talk about the Hunger Games. They have to fake. We just talk about a lot of YA here. <laughs> we read, we, well, we write YA but we also read it. It's a huge genre. It's still in our age demographic. I don't care what anyone says. I am still a young adult. Well, I also feel like that was the time in my life that I read the most. And so I consumed so much YA when I was a teen. Mm -hmm. And these days I just don't have time to read that much. But yeah, we talk a lot about YA. But yeah, that idea, I just, the idea of two characters pretending to be in love and then actually falling in love is just really interesting because it shows intimacy in a really interesting way. And obviously it's not entirely realistic in you know the real world that may or may not happen. But I think that the concept of showing emotional intimacy with someone and how that can lead to romantic feelings is really spicy. So I, I agree with that, but I'm also going to counter it Please do. With the example that we gave earlier in the enemies to lovers section of the proposal. Now they are pretending to be engaged, but I think the big difference here is, at least with the Hunger Games versus the proposal, you know, what a contrast. (laughs) The Hunger Games is done over a longer period of time. Yes. Pretending to be in a relationship for a while, as opposed to like a three-day weekend in Alaska. So I think a big component of what you're saying here is time. Yes. And we also see fake relationships in To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Now on Netflix. Now on Netflix. And that's another situation where it takes place over, I can't remember how long. But you also see it in the new Netflix show Bridgerton, which I don't think you've seen yet. I have not. Speaking of period pieces. Yeah. I won't talk about that too much because I haven't decided how I feel about it. But it does have a fake relationship trope in it. No spoilers. And it kind of shows into all the boys I loved before and in Bridgerton, it shows how letting your guard down around someone and showing these, you know, intimate hidden parts of yourself that people may not see unless they are that close to you. And you may not even show these parts of yourself when you're courting someone. You might have your guard up. You might be wanting to impress them. Those little things are what other people might find attractive. And if you're faking a relationship, sometimes those little things add up to big feelings. Little things, big feelings. I want that on a t-shirt. 
I mean, it sums it up pretty nicely though. I think that's great. I think it's definitely something like that. The trope of fake relationships is something that you're definitely seeing a lot more of, especially when it comes to like young adult generated content. And a lot of them and a lot of other storylines have what I like to call the big misunderstanding. Dun, dun, dun. Exactly. So the big misunderstanding is quite literally the smallest thing could happen, but it causes the biggest blow up. Sometimes it is a big misunderstanding and sometimes it is like relationship ending stuff, but it's never handled well. Yes, absolutely. It's never handled well. And I think that's the biggest problem is misunderstandings happen in relationships and communication is key, people. Communication is the foundation of any good relationship. And if you can't even talk to each other or kind of talk through these misunderstandings, then that's a problem. And so that's why you see so much of that blow up. And my favorite is when it's something so small, you know, and then they just never talk about it. So say like these two characters are dating, one of them goes out to dinner with his sister that the main female character has never met before. She sees them out to dinner and she's like, oh my God, he's cheating on me and just like blocks him on all platforms. Like, what is that? Yeah. That's terrible. You know, all you'd have to do is be like, hey, bud, (laughs) who is that? (laughs) I think a big thing about the misunderstanding is it shows unhealthy coping mechanisms, unhealthy communication, you know, unhealthy relationship stuff that gets swept under the rug when they resolve later in the plot. Yep. Just painting all those red flags a different color. Exactly. And I don't like the misunderstanding trope because like you said, communication is really important. And I think that it's always more interesting to see characters actually talk, Mm -hmm. you know, work through something rather than not unless it's done correctly. And I don't want to say correctly. That makes me sound judgy. Like if it's done in a way that's actually showing something about characters to like get into the writing side of it. If you have a misunderstanding and it's actually furthering the character building of one of the characters, then I think it can be done well. But if it's just done for the sake of tension or conflict, then it gets kind of old pretty quickly. Yeah, completely agree with that. It needs to be done well. And that's where we get into the writing of all of these different cliches. You can do these things well. There's examples of it, but you can also do these things very poorly. And there's also examples of that. Yeah. So I think the writing is the biggest part here because they're cliches for a reason. Yeah. They work when they're done well and people enjoy seeing them when they're done well. But you can't just mass produce these little tropey movies, books or whatever, and expect everyone to gobble it up and love it. Hallmark. Hallmark. I love that we both did that. Uncanny. Oh my God. But speaking of writing and writing new concepts of the same things, I think that'll take us into fan fiction. Fan fiction. There's a lot of sound effects in this episode. I'm going to keep all of them in too. You need to get like a little MIDI keyboard so we can like put in actual sound effects. I'll work on that. Oh, for sure. I'll start saving up. Just get like one of those little kid keyboards. Oh my God. I'll just learn some little tunes on those. You know what I'm talking about? Like the really awful sounding kid pianos. Sure price ones. (laughs) Like the one your dad was playing with when we went to Target with them that one time. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry to put your dad on blast. (laughs) Ah, he's fine. I'm sure he'll appreciate the shout out. Hi, Alan. Hi, Alan. Anyway, fan fiction. Fan fiction. 
Fan fiction can be really popular because it's putting well-loved characters into new situations and it's often done as kind of a character study or maybe even just, I like this character, I identify with this character and I want to see them in new situations. And I'm not going to talk about fan fiction too much because I want to do an episode later about fan fiction, but a lot of fan fiction is very tropey for a reason. Like you said, people like it and a lot of people that write fan fiction put a lot of work into it. And so like a lot of the tropes that we've talked about are tags that you would put on a piece of fan fiction when you upload it, like enemies to lovers, friends to lovers, soulmates, fake dating. Also, a lot of fan fiction is written to explore relationships that you don't see in the source material. One example you gave me earlier was in Harry Potter, Harry and Draco. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that. Yeah. And a lot of it is LGBT. Yeah, so speaking of, if anyone has any Katniss or Joanna fan fiction. Oh my God, please. Or you want to write it, please send it please to me. Please send it to us. <laughs> DM us on Twitter or something. Oh my gosh. Yes, a very early Christmas present. Thank you. But yeah, you see a lot of romance that maybe you don't see in the source material. And I think that's fascinating because it shows that the writer of fan fiction really likes a book, but they think they could do something better or maybe they want to explore something that's not actually shown gives you a lot of really interesting stories yeah and I think it also kind of balances back to representation definitely there's a lot of people who want to see these types of relationships I'm specifically talking about consensual adult relationships between two individuals where, you know, you don't see that very often. I know some fan fiction can go down darker alleys, which we can talk about in another episode, but I'm talking about the consenting adults. You see a lot of that, a lot of what people want to see in popular novels, but it's just not out there yet. Yeah, just a random example that just popped into my head. Like if you look up Avengers fan fiction, the Avengers is a mostly male cast in the whole series. And so you see a lot of Captain America and Iron Man or whatever. And it shows that when you have these casts in movies or in books that are mainly one gender, oftentimes it's mostly men and people consume this and they want to see more of themselves in the media. So writing romance or relationships or what have you in a situation that reflects you can create some honestly really beautiful stuff. There's a lot of shitty fan fiction, but there's a lot of really amazing fan fiction. Just like there are a lot of great books and there are a lot of shitty books. I was just thinking that. Just thinking that. We've never read any shitty books though, have we? No. No, not at all. I have definitely not put down a book halfway done or even a third of the way done. Just being like, I, I can't. I can't ingest this anymore. So touching back on romantic cliches, we see a lot of these different cliches in, like we said, romantic comedies or especially YA novels. But I think we also need to break down the types of characters that we see. So I'm talking about the main leads, which are usually male and female. Those are the main leads that we see. So our main female character, she's usually doing something kind of stereotypical. So she's either like a teacher or she plans weddings or is a florist, works in fashion, you know, the daycare, just some kind of elements of that. So a couple of examples, how to lose a guy in 10 days. She's a writer for like a pop culture magazine, but she wants to write about war and conflict in the Middle East, but she can't because of where she works. And 
wedding planner. That's literally the name of the movie. She plans weddings, but never her own. She's always the planner. So it's just like those kind of stereotypical roles, which yes, women do work in those fields, but so do other people. Women are also engineers and doctors and quite literally anything else. <laughs> Let's see some of those. Politicians. Yes. Absolutely. Let's see some more of that stuff. There are also other stereotypes in the main female character, and a lot of them have to do with her appearance. Maybe she's super, super pretty, and she flaunts that or uses that to her advantage. Yes. Maybe she's super pretty and doesn't know it yet, you know? Or my least favorite is when she is, quote unquote, plain looking. Like how many YA novels have we read that the main female character is described as plain looking? I can think of several. Oh my God. Just too many, I think is the problem. And then there's a scene where she like takes off her glasses and lets down her hair or whatever. And oh my God, she's suddenly beautiful. And I definitely think of the princess diaries. Yes. In that situation, which is also really harmful to people who look like Anne Hathaway in the beginning of that movie where it's like, She's so pretty. Yes. Like I literally just watched that the other day. And before her makeover, the guy doing her makeover literally shrieks when he sees her and he like breaks her glasses because she needs to wear contacts instead. Yeah. Some people don't like contacts. Some people don't like glasses. I prefer contacts because my vision's so terrible and I don't like the blurriness around it. But I mean, Sam, you wear glasses. Yeah. I don't want to put things in my eyeballs. Exactly. But you can be beautiful either way. You are beautiful either way. Yeah, you don't need to conform to a standard of beauty that is, frankly, bullshit. Yeah, and all she really needed, she didn't need straight, smooth hair. She just needed some product in there. Maybe trim it up a little bit. Yeah. Like, her mom had great hair. She clearly knows what she's doing. Yeah. Teach your daughter that. She has very clearly curly hair. But then, like, later at the end of the movie, when she gets wet, her hair is still magically straight. Okay. That's not how that works. It would curl people. I'm like the end of Legally Blonde. <laughs> you are in fact not in the shower. Yeah. And another great example of that kind of trope is the 90s classic, She's All That. She literally takes her glasses off, puts her hair, puts a dress on, and she's suddenly like super hot mm-hmm. because she somehow wasn't super hot when she was in overalls, glasses, and had long hair. I don't get it. It's not just your appearance that makes you hot. It's your personality. It's your sense of humor. Yeah. And a lot of this with appearance also has to do with confidence. So maybe it would be a better movie if instead of getting a new hairstyle and a new wardrobe, she went to therapy and learned to like be awesome and love herself. I get it. You know, some days I will just do my hair and I'll do my makeup and I do feel a bit better about myself. It's like a mask. And you get to be more confident, but I don't want that every day. Sometimes, like some days, I need it more than others. But 95% of the time, especially these days, I don't wear makeup anymore because I don't feel like I need it. And I think that's the end goal that we need to get to is feeling beautiful no matter what you look like. You're not needing to look a certain way. And you kind of get that at the end of She's All That. Like she starts wearing her overalls a little bit more and stuff like that, but It's very obviously changed her and it doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean it's bad. I think the biggest thing with these tropes is confidence is important, but you shouldn't have to change everything about yourself to become confident. We should be teaching young girls to be confident with how they look. And if there are some things you would like to enhance 
great, but do it for you. Don't do it for other people. Like in the Princess Diaries, she does it because her grandmother thinks she doesn't look like a princess. Yeah, terrible. Not to speak ill of Julie Andrews. I would never, would never. We would never, we would never speak ill of Julie Andrews, but that's part of the writing. That's what it all comes down to. They could have taken it one way, but instead they were like, well, you don't look like a princess. So you need to wear stockings and heels and we need to have straight hair. Let's be more creative than that. Be more creative. Yes. And I think that'll take us to the male lead. Speaking of creativity, you get one or two different types of guy and these kind of movies and these kind of books. Sorry, I need to fix my fucking chair. My fucking chair. No, keep that in where I say, hey, I've got to fix my chair. The first kind of guy is, you know, he's super hot and he works out and he's kind of the alpha hole, I think is the word that we found when we were doing some research for this. Yeah, it's one of my favorite words, the alpha male asshole. The alpha hole. The alpha hole. He might be like really rich. You know, he's never been in love before, but he's had plenty of girlfriends and he gets laid all the time. But deep down under his tough, angry exterior he's really sensitive he has a heart of gold okay we we can fix him yeah that's where that comes from too he's broody with a tortured past is he or does he just need to open up more or is he just a jerk or is he just a jerk Hmm. there's a very thin line here do you have any examples for us the great gatsby is a good one yes great gatsby is a great one I think, honestly, a lot of the guys represented in this piece of work are alpha holes in one way or another. You have Jay Gatsby, who was on the poorer side, and then he becomes incredibly wealthy, and he just throws these lavish parties all to try and get the attention of Daisy, who is, one, a married woman, two, unaware that he's even there, and three, an ex-girlfriend. So he's basically made all this money, he has done all these things, he's throwing all these parties not trying to better himself not really he's bettering himself on the outside just to get the attention of a woman who is also not that great he's peacocking he's peacocking yes absolutely and don't even get me started on her husband what's his name jack or something no it's something way worse than that hold on oh mom buchanan mom buchanan he's like hulky and really masculine and aggressive and rich he's old money while jay gatsby is new money new money he's this cool guy he's just the worst he's everything that's wrong with the representation of men in these type of films and not only is he abusive and manipulative he's also cheating on daisy with myrtle he's not a good person like none of them are good people And I mean, I think that's part of the point, but he's like the absolute biggest alpha hole of that entire book, entire movie. Yeah. Another good example. Well, not good. Another example is in Fifty Shades of Grey. He's definitely an alpha hole. Mm -hmm. I don't really want to talk about it that much, but it's a good example. Yeah. I mean, we won't get too much into it, but (laughs) um, consent is sexy. Consent is so sexy. Maybe um, don't bribe people with your money. See, it's always it's always the really rich ones. Like, why why do they have to be like that? Like Gaston. Yes, and we also see these characters even generated in children's media. So Disney, we have Gaston. Kind of the idea of telling a little girl, like, if he pulls your pigtails, it's because he likes you. 
not, he's a dick. (laughs) Stop teaching your children that I'm having a little boy. And I swear if I see him do anything like that, lesson time, buddy, like (laughs) we are learning. We are not pulling anybody's pigtails. Well, even in Beauty and the Beast on the flip side of Gaston, there's the prince. Like he's, he's just as bad. Yeah. He's not great either. No, there's all like, there's just like this hyper-masculine depiction of men and of a lot of men. I know that is not who they are. Like they feel like they have to be this hyper-masculine character because of characters like this, because that's what they're seeing. And it's the same reason that women feel like we have to be a certain way as well. Men have that same problem. These alpha hole characters are just shoved in their face from when they're kids as well. Like we all have to experience that. Oh no. And it's not the type of characters that you want to see, but at least with Frozen, like you have the alpha hole character of Hans. He's awful. He's willing to kill a queen and a princess just to have a stake in something because he has so many older brothers. At the same time, you have the complete opposite of Kristoff. Mm-hmm. So there's a balance there. Hans clearly doesn't win. Kristoff is also fairly masculine though. Oh, but no, he's masculine. Absolutely. But he's sensitive and funny and caring. Like you get to see all those other elements of what real men are. Yeah. As opposed to in Beauty and the Beast, where you have the masculinity of Gaston and the masculinity of Prince Watch the Beast. It's just two hyper-masculine characters that she has to deal with. But with Frozen, you get the balance. You get more of a balance, I guess I should say. And then on the reverse of the alpha hole, we have the mess, the messy boy. Messy boy. Who kind of fumbles his way through charming a girl. He's probably very funny. He might be a little chubby. He probably has like roommates or he's just a total hermit. I know the person that comes to everyone's mind, Seth Rogen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is. Like he, he plays that role. Like I was thinking Jack Black. Or, oh, I love Jack Black. I love Jack Black. That's a man. I mean, I love Seth Rogen too, but like, oh, Jack Black is a good one. Yeah, thank you. God. I just loved him in the Jumanji movie. Like he's, he's great anyway, but we won't go down that. We won't go that way. But for this kind of character, he's always like, he doesn't have his life together and he's at some dead end job or something. And he quote unquote grows up and takes on this new responsibility, like in Knocked Up. Mm-hmm. Seth Rogen, Catherine Heil's character gets pregnant and she works for E! News and seemingly has more of her life together than he does. He sits at home smokes pot, has to like get his shit together for her and like for the baby, which great, but it just, it it doesn't feel very realistic. Well, it also kind of indirectly reinforces the idea that women have to teach men how to be adults. Yes. He's about to be a mother. She doesn't need to mother him too. Exactly. And that's just gross. (laughs) I just hate that trope of like, oh, well, sometimes you have to teach men some stuff. No, they should figure it out themselves. Yeah, they should be a a person. Yeah. And figure it out like we had to, you know? And that's obviously, it's not all men, that's not all women, that's not all people, but there are a certain demographic of people who need like a second mother. That shouldn't be your partner's job. That's not your partner's job. That was your parents' job and they didn't do it correctly. Like if your girlfriend slash boyfriend slash partner has to teach you how to do laundry in your 20s, there's something wrong there. Google it. There's probably a wiki how for you. Oh my God. There's YouTube. It's not that difficult. Don't say you don't know how to do things. Figure it out. Get it together. 
So we've talked about a lot of like stereotypes and tropes, and they all kind of add up to these typical storylines, these formulas that we see repeated over and over a lot of times in like <laughs> Hallmark movies and stuff uh-huh. like that. Uh-huh. Hallmark. <clears throat> There's one that we see a lot of is like two characters meet and they fall in love, but one of them is in a relationship and we see the partner and they're not a good person. So it's okay to cheat on them. Yeah. They're either not very nice or they're too focused on their career or they're already the spark has gone out yeah like the spark has gone out or they're already cheating anyway and so it makes it okay for the partner to do that like we see that in the wedding singer the adam sandler movie drew barrymore movie and i love their movies together because they do have great chemistry so it makes it really interesting to watch but she's been engaged to her alpha hole of a fiance forever he's already cheating on her all these terrible things And she is just friends with Adam Sandler's character, but they end up falling in love with each other and they end up together, even though she's still engaged to this other guy. And the way that it's written and the way that it's presented makes it seem like it's okay. Doesn't that also happen in that one rom-com that you made me watch? Something Borrowed? Yeah, yeah. Yes. And I only love that movie because I just love Jennifer Goodwin and Kate Hudson. But yes, that's exactly what happens. She ends up sleeping with her best friend's fiance. And yeah, they were friends first and she was interested in him first, but he's still engaged to someone else. And that someone else is your best friend. And even though she's already cheating on him, doesn't make it okay. And we keep seeing this trope, like it is okay. Well, the other person's bad, so it's okay when... At the end of the day, it's really not. Like, there's still a lot of people getting hurt here. It's not a good storyline because it shows pretty big flaws in the characters that aren't really resolved. It creates a conflict that has no resolution because it's just swept away and they live happily ever after. So, I mean, that's definitely a trope that I feel like I'm seeing more of. Another kind of typical storyline that I'm seeing a lot of is, again, in every Hallmark Christmas movie, is... She's way too focused on her career. And she's always, love is just not for her. She has a budget meeting at noon. <laughs> it's so silly. She doesn't have time for a relationship. Oh my God, that's the worst. You can love your job, be dedicated to your job, and still have personal relationships outside of it, guys. I'm married to my job. But it's crazy because, you know, she's, or he, but typically we see it as a woman character. We see it in the female characters when it's presented as a flaw. When we see male characters that are way too focused on their career, it's presented as a strength. Yes, that's really solid. But we see her, she's a businesswoman, only cares about her career, black pantsuits, heels (laughs) constantly, very polished all the time. And so we see her like this until one day she has to go back to her hometown because either someone's sick or they're going to close down the Christmas tree farm. And somehow she has to be there for that. And so she's going to see an ex or the one that got away. Or a man in a flannel with a dog. And he teaches her the true meaning of Christmas. Yes. With his small child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's pushing this idea that she's incomplete 
without a man. And relationships are great, but you don't have to be in one. But that's the whole point of a rom-com, blah, blah, blah. But we see it everywhere. Let's try and be a bit more creative. Like, why can't she also get the promotion and get the guy? But if you're trying to pair her up like a classic New York City businesswoman, because she's always from New York, she's not from anywhere else. It's the only big city that matters. And you pair her with some Midwestern farmer. Hey, now. No, no, no offense. I'm saying like she falls for him. So it must be good. You know, with some Midwestern farmer, she's clearly going to have to give up her job because he lives in the Midwest with a farm. What's he going to do in New York City? So you're setting it up for either she has to give up everything for him or they're going to love each other for a little bit and then break up and like what's the point? It's not realistic. That's just what it feels like to me. Have you seen Crazy Rich Asians? Yes. I loved it. Fucking love this movie. That is my first F-bomb of the episode. I'm going to give it a second one. I fucking <laughs> loved this movie. I remember watching this movie. My mom and I were on a plane and we started our screens at the same time so we could watch it together. And oh my God, it was so good. We were so invested in this movie. So if you haven't seen it, definitely watch it. You know, they're in love. Like they are a solid couple. Like you see the communication. Yeah, he doesn't tell her that his family is like mega, mega rich, but I don't blame him for that. It didn't feel like he was maliciously hiding things from her. Yes. Yeah, thank you. That's a perfect way to describe it. You know, you still have the drama of his mother. That's a trope that you see all the time is like the evil mother-in-law or the overprotective mother-in-law. You have to win her approval or it's the end of the world. A parent's blessing sometimes matters. If you have a good relationship with your parents, if they come to you and say, hey, I don't think this person is good for you, maybe take that into consideration. They don't have the final say on your relationship. Exactly. And I think that's something that this movie did really well. And the book itself too did really well is he sticks by her. He's like, look, I'm going to marry her whether you approve or not. And it's Rachel that says, I don't want to split up your family. And at the end of the day, she gets that approval and they live happily ever after. I agree with you that Crazy Rich Asians does a pretty good job with this trope. But one thing that sometimes bothers me is it highlights flaws that already exist in a relationship. It's breaking them apart at the weak points already. And sometimes you don't get to see the resolution, how they get past this conflict. When it comes to relationships, especially when you're thinking about getting married to someone, if you have a fight that gets to a point where you're going to break up with them, you can't just move past it that quickly. And when you're consuming a movie or a book or whatever, it feels unsatisfying not to see that resolution. It's more interesting when the characters talk about stuff. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's definitely something you're going to see more of in books, just because there's more time to kind of delve into those explanations. At least I hope they do. Movie writers can put more effort into implying things also. Just because it's not shown on screen doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And the power of subtext is something that not a lot of people use because lately there's been this huge theme of like, we have to explicitly tell the audience this, otherwise they're not going to get it. You have to trust that your audience is smart enough to understand your plot. Yeah, I'm not going to sit here and hold your hand through this, but I'm going to show you what you need to know. But kind of going away from that one, I think we have two more that we kind of want to touch on. We mentioned this a little bit earlier about being friends who fall in love, but there's this other trope of being like best friends. So they do everything together. They talk about their love lives. They talk about dating. They do 
everything together and their friendship probably started because one, they hooked up and it was weird or they almost hooked up, but they didn't. And decided they wanted to just be friends. Yes. But so there's like some clear underlying sexual tension there already, but they don't act on it until one of them either gets into a serious relationship or is about to get married. And then they realize, oh my God, I'm in love with this other person. I have to tell them now. And they're okay ruining this other person's relationship that they appear happy in. And sometimes it works out for them. Sometimes it doesn't. So an example where it does work out for them is made of honor. Yeah, all of the examples that you wrote down in our notes are wedding movies. (laughs) They're all wedding movies, and there's a reason for that. So Maid of Honor is with uh, Patrick Dempsey, and he realized he's in love with his best friend. When she goes away to Scotland for a few weeks for work, and then she comes back, and she's hella engaged to some Scottish lord. And he's like, oh, shit, Like I was going to tell you when you got back, but this just complicates (laughs) everything. And he's trying to help her with her wedding and she makes him her maid of honor because they're best friends and so there's this even bigger conflict do you ruin this experience for her do you tell her obviously it's patrick dempsey so they're going to end up together the opposite of that would be my best friend's wedding which is julia roberts and her best friend is getting married to a very young super fun cameron diaz and she tries the exact same thing but he's like look i don't love you like that i'm in love with her and i'm literally getting married to her and there's great communication in that movie because that julia roberts character and cameron diaz character they have it out they have a conversation about it and you actually get to see that conflict resolution which is really fun I'm kind of realizing as we're talking about this one that you see this a lot in sitcoms. This exact storyline has happened in like Friends or How I Met Your Mother and probably more that I can't name right now. But usually it is used in a way that character A is in love with character B. Character B goes on a trip, like you said, comes back with character C, and then character A has to figure out how to break them up. That's exactly it. And then they somehow end up together. Because that sounds healthy. (laughs) That sounds healthy. Yeah. Let's just break up a perfectly happy relationship. Or even if it's not a happy relationship. Yeah. Get out of it. If you're outside of, yeah, it's not your business. Yeah. Unless like someone is being physically or emotionally hurt, it's not your business. Yeah. Looking at you, Ross Geller from Friends. Oh my God. He is the worst. He's the worst. I hate Ross. Okay, like you really expect me to believe that Rachel is going to not accept a job in Paris and stay with Ross Geller? No. No. No, absolutely not. No, no, no. (laughs) That is not happening. She should have stayed with Joey. I'm really upset about that, and I have a Uh, lot of emotions. No, I didn't like them together. That's weird. She didn't need to be with anybody. That was the whole point. Yeah, okay. She should have ended up with Phoebe. (laughs) No, but I like Phoebe with all (laughs) Anyway, the weirdest part of that trope is when person A is with person B and it's not working out that great. And they somehow end up with person C who is the brother or sister or coworker of person B. Like it's someone person B sees all the time, probably at Christmas or at work, and they're going to be connected for the rest of their lives. (laughs) It's just, that's weird to me. I think it's, I mean, like all of these, it's one where it can be done well and it can be done poorly. And Sometimes if you are with, you know, if person A is with person B, but they discover they have more chemistry with this other person, that can be done really interestingly and show the internal conflict, you know, with, well, I'm already with this person, but I really would like to give it a shot with this other person. 
It's an interesting choice. But then it can also just be done lazily and have it be like, well, I don't really care if I hurt this person's feelings. I'm just going to break up with them or cheat with them. Person B is seemingly okay with it or they've just like accepted it. Person B is not always a bad person. They're just not the right person. Yeah. And they're also probably not a main character. So the audience isn't supposed to care about what happens to them. Yeah. We're not attached to them. You're rooting for, you know, the main characters and, but their love is going to make it through at the end of the day. And so you're not really thinking about the injured party. Yep. Exactly. But if it's written well, you should care about all of the characters. So in terms of these tropes, these characters, we've clearly seen a lot of romantic comedies and read a lot of YA novels that that circle around romance. Do you have a favorite romantic comedy? Yes. Just to suggest for people to watch this Valentine's Day. I love When Harry Met Sally. That's one that I watch on New Year's Eve because there's three different New Year's scenes in that movie. It's a bit dated at this point, but I really like that one. Nice. And another one that I really like, I know that you're going to mention. Yes. So you can go ahead and mention it. Okay. That was me segueing. Well, it sounded like you were going to keep going. My favorite romantic comedy slash romantic movie of all time is About Time. Yes, that's what I was going to mention. Yes, that is my absolute favorite movie. I watch it multiple times a year. Right, so hard when I rewatch that. Currently on Netflix. So if you haven't seen it and you live in the US, it is on Netflix. So you should check it out. Valentine's Day, literally any day that you possibly can. It's so wholesome on so many levels. And it's funny. And there's time travel in it. Ooh. Yeah, it's it's so well done. It's beautifully written, which is another reason I love it so much. And Rachel McAdams. <laughs> I think that's really all I need to sell it is just Rachel McAdams. So there you have it. There's some tropes and cliches that you see a lot in these romantic stories. And keep that in mind the next time you're watching or reading or writing your own stories. And happy Valentine's Day. Yes, happy Valentine's Day. This has been Right Brained. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again next time.